This week, the Comics Guys attempt to explain the Comics Code. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Steve Tasker. This is Darren Watts. Hello, everybody. And this week, we're going to talk about something that has a great deal of influence on comics history, but isn't really talked about anymore, and that is the Comics Code. So, Darren, what is the Comics Code? The Comics Code is a set of guidelines that were agreed to back in the 1950s, originally, by uh, publishers who were facing a great deal of pressure from outside sources, and we'll talk about that coming up. But basically, it's a list of things that comics are allowed to include and not allowed to include for content, set up by a third-party organization that comic publishers would send their comics to to get them approved. And when they got approved, they would get this little stamp that they were allowed to put on their covers saying the Comics Code Authority has approved this, that this is okay for kids, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And so what year does the Comics Code come about? 1954. So what were comics like before that? What caused the Comics Code to be necessary? Sure. When World War II was ending and, you know, the soldiers were coming back to you know, to, to home, basically, and starting up families, the beginning of the baby boom. The comic books at that point were primarily superhero and, you know, war stories. And neither of those were terribly popular with the new generation of kids that were coming along to actually read comics. The most popular comics at the time, in the late 40s and early 50s, were crime and horror comics. Basically, stories about zombies and vampires and werewolves and all sorts of stuff and then also stories about mobsters either fictional ones or more and more frequently real world ones where comics like crime does not pay would serialize the life stories of people like al capone john dillinger and stuff like that these were insanely popular and were pushing pretty much every other genre except maybe romance which was also very popular off the stands you weren't getting superheroes or science fiction or anything like that in comics anymore. And these were, you know, concerning because of their content to various groups, mothers, you know, of kids, church groups, that sort of thing. We're all very concerned about the increasingly graphic and, you know, potentially damaging to, you know, to these poor, innocent little children to see these awful images and awful stories in their comics. Right. So how does the code actually come about? What pushes us to get there, right? There's basically two people who are kind of central in how this actually happens. One of them is a, a psychiatrist by the name of Frederick Wortham. Frederick Wortham was a German psychiatrist. He was born in Germany in 1895. He was an associate of and a friend of Sigmund Freud, and he came to America in the 20s to work at Johns Hopkins. He worked at Bellevue in New York for a while. He had a clinic in Harlem that specialized in working with black teenagers 
and their assorted, you know, like social problems and that sort of thing of uh, black teenagers there. So he begins, he gets very concerned about the idea that, you know, comics are dangerous, that the new type of comics that are being published in the late 40s are very concerning to him. And he believes that comic book reading specifically contributes to juvenile delinquency. It leads kids into crime. It leads kids into, you know, bad behavior. And he starts writing magazine articles about this, which get published in places like the Saturday Home Review and Reader's Digest and places like that. He travels around the country. He speaks to churches and he speaks to women's groups and everything. And he becomes moderately famous for, you know, for, for this campaign that he is on to kind of like censor comics and say, you know, this sort of material is not appropriate for kids. Around the same time, a senator from Tennessee, Estes Kavaver, is gets interested in the same sort of concern. Estes Kavaver had two things that he was famous for as a senator. One was, you know, being extremely concerned about the content of pop culture material. You know, he didn't like rock and roll. He didn't like magazines with pinups in them. He didn't like, you know, anything like that. And he also didn't like the mob. He was famous as a mob fighter. And so comic books as an, as an industry was a great combination of the two things Estes Kavaver really liked to fight against, right? Because the mob was very in, involved in the production and distribution of comic books at the time. And at some point, one of these days, we're going to do a, a history of DC Comics and tell like the full story of how much the mob was actually involved in creating it as a company. Awesome. So we're looking at people who are kind of the same thing as we see with any new media, like, you know, in the 90s, Jack Thompson kind of feels the same. Sure. So Kefauver kind of like adopts Wortham, you know, they, they become partners on this, right? Like Kefauver start, you know, referring to Wortham's articles that he's writing and that sort of thing. And he gets a Senate Judiciary Committee subcommittee basically, to take a look at what is causing this terrible problem of juvenile delinquency that we're having in America here in 1954, that all of these kids are disrespectful to their elders, they're committing crimes, just juvenile delinquency is getting entirely out of control, out of hand. These teenagers, what are we going to do about them? Right. And he invites Frederick Wortham and a bunch of actual comic book publishers and distributors to come speak at this hearing in New York in April of 1954. Frederick Wortham, in, you know, like knowing that this is coming, schedules the publication of his new book to coincide with the hearings, right? Like he wants to take full advantage of the press in doing this. And he releases a book that, that's pretty famous called Seduction of the Innocent, which is the, the story of how awful crime and horror comics are, what a terrible influence they are on kids, and oh, incidentally, superheroes also are a terrible influence on kids. It's kind of like a lesser topic, but people today kind of remember it because of his concerns. He, he says that Batman and Robin are promoting homosexuality. Wonder Woman is uh, promoting both lesbianism and bondage, sadomasochism. The latter one is actually probably kind of true. Yep. And Superman's a fascist. Okay. So, you know, that's just, you know, 10 pages of a 200-page book, though. Like, the vast majority of what he's actually talking about in the book are, you know, horror comics showing uh, panels, showing decapitations and 
people being stabbed in their eyeballs and a bunch of other, you know, like just terrible, awesome stuff. Oh, the humanity. Right. And then also the glamorization of the lives of people like Al Capone. Right. This is, you know, we, we did crime does not pay was one of the most popular comics of the time from EC comics and the cover, you know, logo for it. The word crime is in like 60 point type. Right. And then does not pay is in tidy little like 12 point type underneath it. <laughs> right. So they would say it's, oh, yes, well, we're, you know, we're only showing how awful crime is. But of course, they're totally glamorizing it and making it look incredibly cool to be a monster. Right. So. So the two of them kind of have found each other, you know, to work together, right? This is a great promotional thing for, for Wortham and his book. And Kefauver has, you know, all of this support for the subcommittee that he's having, you know, the, the, that he's setting up to the point where not only are the hearings on like the front page of the New York Times and all over the place, but they're actually televised. Wow. And in 1954, being on TV is a big deal, right? I mean, like the TV, it, it still isn't even that common yet. But the actual hearings for this are on TV for like three straight nights. And it becomes this kind of like national sensation. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to even imagine a world where comics were that important to the cultural zeitgeist that just like the the judicial hearings about them would be national news on television. Right. I mean, like everybody was talking about how terrible comics are. Yeah, that's that's really so part of the problem with this is that the science that is in seduction of the innocent i mean yes it's got all of these you know kind of like sensational spectacular panels of you know of gore and whatever but in theory wortham's a psychiatrist right and he makes all of these statements and talks about all of these studies about the damage that this is doing to kids the methodology of his science is absolutely terrible it makes no sense whatsoever the evidence is mostly anecdotal. Sample sizes are wrong and misstated throughout the book. The, in 2010, 56 years after the book was published, the Library of Congress finally unsealed the manuscript. When, uh, when Wortham died, he left all of his material to the Library of Congress, but the executor of his estate would not allow all of the research material that he had put into this book to be open to the public. Hmm. And so from 1981, when he died until 2010, you couldn't look at any of the documents that were supposedly backing up the material in Seduction of the Innocent. In 2010, they were finally unsealed and a reporter named Carol Tilly went in and took a look at them and the data is completely falsified. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a complete disaster. He totally cheated and lied in everything that he you know, said in these, in these programs. There is in fact, actually no real evidence that comic books are damaging kids at all, right? I mean, like the interviews that he did with kids were almost entirely with children's groups from hospitals or foster programs, right? And it's full, the book is full of statistics like, oh, 95% of all children in reform school read comic books. 95% of all kids read comic books, right? I mean, that's not, you know, that doesn't tell you anything about the actual causation that uh, reading comic books leads to going to reform school, you know, by percentages, they're pretty much exactly the same, you know? Good lesson in how, in how numbers can. Right, exactly. So anyway, this book is, is terrible, but extremely popular. The hearings are, like I said, they're a big news event. Most of the publishers who show up to this, like I said, Kefauver's got kind of like two different things that he's trying to do in this hearing. One is he wants to talk about juvenile delinquency specifically and whether comics are causing it. But two, he's also a mob hunter, 
right. right? And so he's really, he asks a lot of questions over the course of these two or three days of, of testimony about comic book distribution that has nothing to do with juvenile delinquency because he's chasing mobsters, right? right? He takes advantage of all of like the publicity and everything about the juvenile delinquency side to go after like pricing programs and distribution that are probably mob controlled, right? Because they would have small regional distributors and newsstands and magazine stores and everything would have these deals with the primary distributors or the actual publishers of comic books where they had to buy an entire line, right? So if you didn't buy that, that allowed the publishers to have a floor on how many copies a new comic would sell. So if you didn't buy at least two of everything in their line, you couldn't, you weren't allowed to buy the thing that would sell a hundred copies, right? So that meant that in order to get the popular thing, you had to buy at least a couple of the less popular new thing, right? And so this is called the, 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 the prefix purchasing program. And a lot of distributors and a lot of retailers complained about it. And they complained about it specifically in this hearing because they were saying, we don't want to carry the horrible, gory crime comics. We wish we didn't have to, but we have to because otherwise we can't get Superman, right? Or we can't get whatever else, whatever the hot popular thing was, you know, therefore we have to. And that kind of a setup for a sales program was notoriously something that mobsters did in mob-influenced industries. And so Kefauver spends a whole lot of time in a hearing that is supposed to be about juvenile delinquency, chasing people down about the prefix program and kind of like gathering evidence that he would use later in completely unrelated stuff. Gotcha. But most of the other people who like come on and actually testify about it for this are still talking about whether or not comics cause juvenile delinquency. And the guy who kind of like famously gets screwed by this is William Gaines. William Gaines was the publisher of EC, who did most of the most notorious horror and crime comics in this period. And EC at this point is one of the biggest selling publishers in comics because they do, you know, Vault of Horror and all of this other, you know, kind of like famous Tales from the Crypt, that kind of thing. That's all EC, right? Okay. And so they get him on the stand for this. Every other publisher had the good sense to show up with lawyers, right? Like they brought their lawyers to the hearing to make sure that they were kind of, you know, like covered in case anything went on. William Gaines is like, I don't need a lawyer. I'm fine. I can do this myself. Fortress. Yeah. He gets up on the stand to talk about it. And Estes Kafaver and a couple of other people start interviewing him about specific comics of his. They're literally like holding up covers of like decapitated heads and that kind of thing and asking him whether or not he believes they're in good taste. And he starts getting into these kind of like nitpicky arguments over whether this head being, you know, like the, this decapitated head is showing too much blood, okay. right? Or it's like how much, how much blood is an appropriate amount of blood to be shown from a decapitated head or how much kind of, you know, like viscera, how many intestines are too many, too much to show when somebody's stomach has been cut open. Right. Right. And Gaines, not really kind of like realizing the situation he's in, is totally willing to argue with these guys about it. Right. He starts talking about what he considers the, the lines of appropriate taste for this and gets kind of 
caught up in his own discussion to the point where he's starting to insist that nothing that he publishes could in fact actually have any influence on children, right? Like the children are too smart for this, their children are not, which of course then, you know, kind of like undercuts his argument that the Bible comics that they publish were good, right? I mean, if like, if, if the gore and horror and crime comics have no negative influence, then how can you say that the Bible comics have good influence, right? Do comics have influence over kids or not? Right. And he starts stammering and stuttering and everything, and he looks really bad on camera on the stand, right? He just gets eviscerated. They tear him apart. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to talk in public about this sort of thing. And these are professional politicians and lawyers who just shred him on the stand. And of course, once again, this gets shown on television and reported every day. The next day, it's a front page article in the New York Times for each, you know, each day's worth of testimony and everything. So this almost crushes EC as a company for this. And the rest of the publishers look at what happened, look at the way that Gaines got treated in this, and they're like, we don't want to go through that. Mm. We don't ever want to have another one of these kind of things. We don't ever want to be, I mean, this is terrible for companies. It makes us look bad. We've got to do something. And so they get together as a group and decide we will create our own operation, our own setup of standards of decency. And that means the government won't do it for us, right? We will submit this to the government and say, here's a thing that we have created on our own. Does, is this acceptable? Will this keep you from forming your own, you know, like organization to censor us, right? You know, this, this sounds a lot like the record and uh, video game industries from when I was a kid. Is this before or after the film industry did the same thing? After the Hays Code is actually in the late 30s, early 40s. So the Hayes Code is one of the things, in fact, that the Comics Code leans on as an example of how to do it, right? Is to look at the way the film industry did this starting in about 1938, 39, when that was kind of like forced on them from outside. They're like, we'll do it the same kind of way in order to make sure that like we don't wind up drawing that kind of interest, that kind of scrutiny from the government that the film industry actually did. And then the recording industry goes through the same thing in the 70s and 80s, right? With Tipper Gore and all of those, you know, that whole crowd about, uh, about record rating and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a periodic thing that kind of like rises up in our culture that we need to take a look at this kind of like cultural thing and decide whether it's okay for kids, you know? Yeah. So they create this private organization. They create a board on it and like install people who will serve on the board for a couple of years. And they create a whole list of guidelines that is called, that is the comics code, right? And this will be in 1950, late 1954, they put out this, this list of what is and is not acceptable to appear in a comic. And the government basically approves it. Estes Kefauver says, that's perfectly good. I am okay with this list. Go ahead, set up this organization. And that board became known as the comics code authority which was this kind of like separate organization that frequently had on its board people who worked for the publishers, right? There were some of the seats on the board were reserved for members of the companies that were doing the submissions. But some of them were also held as like for outside that were, you know, people who would come in to like serve on it as, as outside judges, basically, of whether something was acceptable. And so when your comic was approved by the authority, every month the comics publishers would send copies of their comics to this organization 
the organization and take a look at it, see if it matched this list of stuff, or you didn't do any of the things in this comic that we say you can't do. And they would issue this little stamp, this little badge for it that was said approved by the Comics Code Authority, and that went on the cover of every comic. Right. And so that's kind of how comics gets out of from under this, right? Like the horror comics that did could not possibly pass the new comics code list. Crime comics could not possibly pass this list. Those comics all basically stopped being published. Right? We get out of the horror and crime comics business, basically starting in 1954. And it's one of the things that's that brings superheroes back. A sizable chunk of all the comics on the stands just went away. We don't we need other genres, we need other stuff to come back and replace it. And so westerns come back, science fiction comes back, and superheroes come back in a big way. The Justice League, uh, the, the not the Justice League, the Flash, the beginning of the Silver Age is literally 18 months after the creation of the comics code. Right? That's the beginning of the whole new kind of like age of superheroics on, on stage. And the reason superheroes are able to make that huge kind of like splash is two thirds of the comics that were on the stands in 1953 aren't being published anymore. There's a whole lot of wide open space. Yeah. So, you know, that having happened for us, William Gaines, of course, goes back to EC having been publicly humiliated, you know, in this trial and everything and says, we are done with comics. I'm not dealing with any of that again. Cancels within a year pretty much cancels all of his horror and crime comics and most of everything else that he is doing decides he's going into the magazine business instead which will not be covered by the comics code and creates mad magazine he and harvey kurtzman basically like create mad as a reaction to the, the creation of the comics code authority and how badly he felt he was treated by the comics industry at that point so he's like i'm never doing comics again we do magazines now interesting birthplace for matt mm-hmm so the Comics Code stays in effect for a very long time, but it goes through some changes over the years. Right. So what's the first, like, the big change in this code? So for 15 or so years, we have comics follow this code, right? And I've got a the list of all of the things here that the code actually requires. We should post. We will never. We can post a copy. Yeah, we can post a link to it. Absolutely. We'll post a link to it on the page. But like some of the fun stuff that's in here says crime will never be presented in a way as to create sympathy for the criminal, to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice, or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals. No comics shall explicitly present the unique details and methods of a crime. Criminals shall not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gun play, physical agony, gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. Incidentally, we can now no longer have any scenes dealing with or instruments associated with the following list. Walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism. None of these things are allowed to be in comics, starting in 1954. You can't have any stories about vampires, can't have any stories about werewolves. Certainly zombies are right out. It's our, these are just outright banned from this, right? Yeah. And for 15 years in comics, that's the case, right? That actually happens. Yeah, that's crazy. But 15 years, there is an exception here? Well, during that time, obviously, by the, by the time you get to the mid and late 60s, the indie comic industry, quote unquote, you know, like indie comics start to become a thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that they're doing, one of the things they're kind of rebelling against is the idea of 
the comics code, right? Is the idea that we can't have sex in our comics, that we can't have drugs in our comics, we can't have violence in our comics. Well, you know, these guys want that, right? And so the great kind of like underground comics creators of the late 60s, early 70s are doing this in reaction to the comics code. People like R. Crumb, the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, and all of those, you know, like titles that started coming out in the late 60s are actively not getting any sort of like approval for what it is they're doing. There's no mainstream publishers that would dare at this point to put out a comic that didn't carry that stamp right for this but underground comics that are being you know sold in head shops already they don't need to get that stamp of approval there's no there's there's nothing that that they're looking for from them right so that's a start so then we have what happened in mainstream comics and what happened in mainstream comics is stan lee at marvel had been working with a government official whose name i've lost right here for it i was looking for it but i couldn't find it but a but a guy who was trying to get used comics to promote like an anti-drug message, right? Like he wanted to use Marvel characters in like a government-sponsored advertisement saying, hey, kids, stay off drugs. And Stan was all in favor of this, right? Despite the fact that he was kind of overseeing a bullpen where a great deal of, you know, drugs were being used, Stan himself was perfectly clean and was completely in favor of having kids not use drugs, etc. And so he kind of like inspired by this idea, not only said yes, but I'm going to do, or I'm going to have, you know, my writers do a story in which, you know, drugs will be portrayed as a terrible evil, right? And this is 1970. So this is a time obviously when culturally, you know, drug use among young people once again had kind of like reared its head as a topic of interest for mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. And so Spider-Man, Number Amazing Spider-Man issues number 96 through 98 are a story in which one of Spider-Man's close friends, Harry Osborn, winds up being a, becomes a drug addict, right? Becomes, is taking drugs, becomes addicted to them, has, you know, his life basically falls apart. And by the end of that third issue of this three, three three-part story, kicks them, goes through withdrawal with Peter's help, with Peter Parker's help, you know, kind of like, and comes out the other side. And the message of the comics is very much, hey, drugs are bad, kids, stay away from them. This is, you know, this is the kind of thing that will happen to you, right? Right. Of course, the code can't allow that. Well, that's the thing. He submits those to the code and the code says, no, cannot portray drug use at all. Even if you are portraying it as something bad and negative and, you know, evil, basically, still can't even show it happening. And rather than accept that, rather than say, oh, crap, okay, I guess we'll put something else out in these issues, Stan thinks the issue is important enough for this to go ahead and put these on the stands without a Comics Code stamp, without Comics Code approval. And this is the first time in 17 years, 16 years, that a mainstream comic has gone out onto the stands without the Comics Code's uh, approval, right? The CCA gets together immediately and has a meeting about this. They're like, uh, we're not sure we made the right call on this one, right? Like, here it is. This is a message that we're in favor of. But now we've let these guys see that it's possible to kind of, like, go around us. If they start going around us, you know, for good things, maybe they'll start going around us for bad things, too, right? Like, this is a, this is a dangerous precedent to set. So in the kind of, like, aftermath of these three comics going out without the code, the the comics code authority gets together and rewrites the comics code, 
and says, okay, you can in fact show these various things as long as you show them negatively, right? As long as you say in the comic, as long as the point of the story is drugs are bad kids, then you can show people using drugs in the comic, right? But at this point, they've kind of shown the publishers that you can go around them. Right, so that- right exactly. Those, those three issues of Spider-Man sold just as well without the, without the stamp as the ones with, right? Like it had no effect on their sales whatsoever. Right. So the CCA says, well, crap, with, you know, we, that's, that's not how we meant for that to go, <laughs> right? It should be a bigger deal. So they rewrite their standards. So now it's okay to show drug use as long as you show that it's bad. And DC immediately responds, of course, with Green Lantern, Green Arrow, 85, where Speedy, Green Arrow's teen sidekick, is shooting up heroin. Famously addicted to heroin. The famously, exactly, well, the famous cover of like, you know, my ward, a, 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 a druggie, whatever, you know, kind of thing. And that's immediately after the comics code says showing drug use is okay. Once again, as long as you say it's bad. Now, as long as they were updating the comics code, they were like, you know what? We might have kind of overreacted a little bit. Vampires aren't really that big a social concern, (laughs) right? Zombies, we're not really like that stressed over whether people show zombies anymore. And people were kind of like making the argument, so like what, I can't adapt Dracula? I can't adapt Frankenstein because he's undead, right? Like these are classic pieces of literature, you know, for this. It's a little extreme to say that I can never show somebody who's undead. I can never show a werewolf. I can never show a vampire. And so the comics code changes that side too, right? They're like, okay, werewolves. Yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. That's fine. Vampires. Okay, that's fine. Zombies. That's cool. Whatever. And so with that new freedom, suddenly mainstream comics, particularly Marvel, but pretty much everybody really, suddenly has a wave of horror comics return to the stands, right? You've had this kind of like 17 year backlog of like nobody could publish a decent horror comic because you weren't allowed to say anything or do anything in it. And suddenly there is an explosion of horror in the seventies that leads to so many like well-known, particularly in Marvel, so many well-known kind of like monster related characters, right? Like in the immediate aftermath of the change of the comics code, you have Tomb of Dracula, you have Ghost Rider, you have all of these, you know, like beloved Marvel characters that hadn't been allowed to be created suddenly explode on the scene in the early 70s with the change of, uh, of what the comics code was going to allow. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a weird side effect was, you know, like the horror boom of the 70s kind of like came about because of Harry Osborn. Doing- yeah, of Harry Osborn doing drugs. Exactly. So this kind of starts uh, the slow decline of the code, right? Right. It started, they've shown their weakness at this point, right? And so the other publishers that had been so scared of them that didn't dare to kind of like push anything, they see that, you know, Zippy the Pinhead and Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers and R. Crumb assorted stuff are all selling very well as underground comics without submitting to them at all. And now they saw that the Comics Code basically backed down and changed its guidelines rather than fight with publishers anymore. They start saying, well, you know, I don't really think this thing has quite the teeth in it that we, that we thought it did. And so more and more comics, mainstream comics, start kind of like pushing the boundaries, right? And so over the course of the 70s, into the 80s, into the early 90s, comics are showing more violence. They're showing more sex. Nightwing and Starfire are shown in bed together, even though they're not married in Teen Titans, et cetera, et cetera, all of these things. 
and and the comics code never says a thing, right? Like nothing ever gets returned. The comics code never turns anything down for this. They've, they've pretty much kind of like abandoned doing any of this. DC and Marvel create these kind of the high-end imprint for them and don't bother to submit them, right? Like nothing from Marvel's epic line was even submitted to the code because they knew it wouldn't pass. So they don't even bother. DC creates Vertigo, right? Like all of the Sandman and Swamp Thing and all of the other titles for us did not submit them to the code, didn't even bother to try. And the fact that these went out to, you know, this is at the time, this is also when the business model for comics is changing, right? Because this is when comic shops begin to exist, right? And so comics publishers are no longer really concerned that their titles are being sold on a newsstand in a grocery store or something like that, or in a drugstore or something like that, they're being sold in comic shops, right? And so they're being sold to an audience who presumably is not going to be shocked by what they see on a, on a cover, right? There's not, you know, random little old ladies are not going into a comic shop to be horrified by the type, by what's on the covers, right? They, if, you, if you didn't go into, a, if you were going into a comic shop, you were presumably there to buy comics. Right. There was no kind of like incidental, oh, I happened to see these when I was down getting milk at the grocery store. So as the model changed, publishers just increasingly stopped actually either submitting or, you know, being concerned that the comics code would say no. In 2001, Marvel sends, as they did, they kept sending their stuff every, every time. They sent an issue of X, the Rob Liefeld X-Force at that point for this two- the comics code. And for whatever reason, the comics code was feeling spunky that day and said, you know what, this is, this has this, that, and the other thing in this title that's, that w- this won't pass. We won't allow this. You, you, you can't publish this. It had like too much violence. And I think there was like a near nudity scene, somebody getting out of a shower and they were just like, nope, sorry, no good. And at that point, Marvel just said, oh, okay, th- we're going to publish it anyway. <laughs> and furthermore, we are dropping out of the Comics Code Authority. We are not going to submit any of our stuff to you anymore for this. We are not going to you know, participate in this. We are going to create our own internal rating system and our comics will come out with a marking that we created ourselves for it that says, this is rated E for everybody. This is rated T for teens. This is rated M for mature or whatever, a thing that we have internally created ourselves for this because we think we have a better idea what the marketplace is looking for than you do. And, you know, we no longer feel the need to involve you in this process. And they go ahead and they send their new internal rating system out to retailers and the press and make a whole kind of like big deal out of like Marvel is not participating in this anymore. We've got our own system. And then over the next 10 years, pretty much every other publisher goes along with that, right? Like piece by piece, they start kind of like dropping out, setting up their own internal systems. The last two big mainstream publishers to still be with the code, to still be submitting to the authority are DC and Archie Comics. And even they, by the end of 2010, realize we're basically the only two companies left in this group anymore, right? Like what's this is kind of pointless at this point. And so they kind of like give up and go along creating their own and the comics code authority basically disbands as an organization at the end of 2010 and no longer exists for everybody after you know 56 years of being this incredibly influential you know determiner of what was going to be allowed in a comic 
you know, they kind of like end with a whimper, not a bang. They just kind of faded away. Nobody cared. Yeah. I mean, they time just kind of left them behind. Exactly. And like I said, it's not like, you know, the comics stopped being looked over for material. It's just they were being looked over internally and sent out with a rating system. Right. So, this, which was, once again, itself kind of basically based on what movies do, right? I mean, it's like, you know, they submit stuff to, you know, to somebody to take a look at to determine whether this movie is going to be PG-13 or R or whatever for this. It's just in this case, it was now being done inter- internally by the company itself, which they, you know, sold to the press and sold to retailers and everything as a service they were providing, right? Like, we don't want you to ever be confused and accidentally get something you didn't mean to get, something that's, you know... If, if you only want comics for kids, now you know, only order stuff with an E or T rating or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. So. It still is kind of, um, it's, it is kind of unique in the, in the industry. If Paramount was just like, we're, we're no longer using the, you know, right. G. Yeah. G we're not submitting scale. to the MPAA anymore. Yeah. Right. We're going to use our own scale now. That would be like earth shattering. It would. It would be, it would be a pretty sizable change. Yeah. But it might happen eventually. That's yeah. the sort of thing that, you know. Especially with the changeover stream. Well, thank you all so much for listening. That was the Comics Code Authority explained. <laughs> we'll put up the actual links to both the code itself and to the transcripts of those hearings in 1954 are both available online. We'll put links up to them on the page. Yeah, check in the description. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Bye. Bye.